Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi, everyone. Today, Nina and I are discussing the aftermath of Teddy Deegan's murder from the investigation to the arrest of the supposed perpetrators. Next week, we will finish the story with their trial, the exposure of the Boston FBI field office's failure to bring the real killers to justice, their role in the cover-up, and what happened to the men who were wrongfully convicted. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, you might want to check that one out first to hear about the events leading up to Teddy's murder. We'll also be profiling the men who would eventually be charged with Teddy's murder, but let's start with the immediate aftermath. In a memo dated March 15, 1965, three days after Teddy was killed, Special Agent Rico wrote that he had been in contact with an informant on March 10th. The informant, I believe, was Jimmy Flemmy. According to Rico, Jimmy told him that Patriarca had put the word out that Teddy was to be hit and that a dry run had already been made and a close associate of Teddy's had agreed to set him up. There was also a discussion about having a provable alibi in case Jimmy was suspected of killing Deegan. Rico again repeated Jimmy's tale that Deegan had pulled a gun on Joe Barboza and that's why Raymond gave his okay to kill Teddy. This appears to be the first time that an FBI memo makes the claim that Raymond Patriarca approved the hit. As we noted in the previous episode, nowhere in the 302s from the wiretap did Raymond actually say okay to killing Teddy. The day after Teddy was murdered, Rico again made contact with Jimmy, who gave him yet another version of the events surrounding Teddy's murder. Jimmy claimed that Deegan was lured to a finance company in Chelsea in order to commit a B&E. The door to the finance company had been left open by an employee. When Teddy and Roy French, who was setting Deegan up, got to the door, Roy shot Teddy in the back of the head and Romeo Martin and Ronnie Cassesso came out of the door and fired into Teddy's body. While Teddy was being killed, Jimmy and Joe Barboza walked toward a car driven by Anthony Stathopoulos to kill him, but Stats saw them coming and drove off before any shots were fired. Jimmy further claimed that Ronnie Cassesso and Romeo Martin wanted to prove to Raymond Patriarca that they were capable individuals, and that was the reason they wanted to kill Teddy. Jimmy said they did, quote, an awful sloppy job. But I don't think that Jimmy said they did an awful sloppy job. I think Rico said to Jimmy that he did an awful sloppy job. Frankie Salemi used that exact same expression when talking about how Rico critiqued their alleged attempt on punching McLaughlin later that year. At the time, Rico said, quote, boy, what a sloppy piece of work that was. Other people could have got hurt. Just a geeky side note, in his memos, H. Paul Rico would refer to himself as the informant and the CI would be named. The day following Deegan's murder, Anthony Stathopoulos, this time accompanied by attorneys John Fitzgerald and Al Farisi, returned to the Chelsea Police Department. Stats was shown photographs of Roy French, Joseph Barboza, Jimmy Flemmy, and Ronnie Cassesso. The police also mentioned Freddie Chiampa. Stathopoulos asked how the police knew who had committed the murder. The police answered that they'd gotten the information from an informant. Their informant was the FBI, who had passed on the information that Jimmy had provided to Rico. Also, the Massachusetts State Police had the ebb tide under surveillance. 
It also warned Stats to watch out for the men whose photos had been shown to him. Two more unnamed men were also questioned that same day, but no one was held. The cops were still waiting for the autopsy report to determine if Teddy had also been shot from the front. Boston Police Department Detective Billy Stewart also wrote a report on March 13th. Quote, from a reliable informant, the following facts were obtained about the Deegan murder. Informant states that the following men were Joseph Barron, a.k.a. Barboza, Romeo Martin, Freddie Chiampa, Roy French, Ronnie Cassesso, Anthony Stapopoulos, and Chico Amico. Informant states that they were over at a lounge in Revere when they received the call from French that everything was okay, then they all left together. Romeo Martin is a former informant, but since hanging in the North End, hasn't been too helpful. Informant states that the reason for the killing of Deegan was that Barboza claims that Deegan is with the Hughes brothers and the McLaughlins, and he felt Deegan was a threat to his friends, the Flemings and Bennett brothers and Roxbury, end quote. Billy Stewart's informant was Wimpy Bennett, but that wasn't revealed until the appeal seven years later. On Sunday, March 14th, Lieutenant Thomas Evans of the Chelsea Police Department wrote a detailed report about Teddy's murder. Quote, I received information from Captain Renfrew that an informant of his had contacted him and told him that Roy French had received a telephone call at the Eptide in Revere at 9 p.m. on March 12th, and after a short conversation, Roy left the Eptide with the following men. Joseph Barboza, Ronald Cassesso, Vincent Flemmy, Francis Imbruglia, Romeo Martin, Nicky Femia, and Freddie Ciampa. They are said to have returned at about 11 p.m., and Martin was alleged to have said to French, quote, we nailed him, unquote. A little bit about Roy. Wilfred Roy French was born on March 13, 1929, in Swampscott, Massachusetts, to Wilfred and Mary French. Roy worked as a horse trainer and was a bouncer at the Ebb Tide. In December of 64, he was charged with participating in the armed robbery of the Beverly Trust Company in Linfield on September 11th of that year. Charged with him was Joseph Patrizzi. He was released on bail. The trial didn't start until February 15, 1966, and he was acquitted on March 2nd. Over two years later, Roy stated during his trial that he had never owned a gun, but we'll get more into the trial in the next episode. Before we move on, I just want to mention that Roy passed away in January, just shy of his 93rd birthday. All right, back to the timeline. On March 15th, a detective from the state police, Richard J. Cass, wrote a report to the captain of detectives, Daniel I. Murphy, regarding the homicide of Teddy Deegan. He stated that Chelsea officer James O'Brien was the patrolman for the area where Teddy was found. Officer O'Brien checked the alleyway around 9 p.m. and turned the lights on. He returned around 10.59 p.m. and found the alley lights were off. He explored the alley and found Deegan's body. The report also said that during the evening of Friday, March 12th, Joseph Barboza was at the ebb tide with Francis Imbruglia, Ronnie Cassesso, Jimmy Flemmy, Romeo Martin, Nikki Femia, and Freddie Chiampa. Around 9 p.m., Roy French received a phone call and the above group left the ebb tide with him. According to the report, Chelsea Captain Joseph Kozlowski was around 4th Street at 9.30 p.m. and saw a red car with the motor running and three men inside. The rear license plate was obstructed, but it would later be revealed that it was Romeo Martin's car. Officer Kozlowski approached the driver, and the driver sped off. He described the driver as Romeo Martin. The man in the back seat was stocky with dark hair and a bald spot in the center of his head. Richard Cass wrote, Quote, unconfirmed information was received that Romeo Martin and Ronnie Cassesso had entered the building 
and were waiting just inside the rear door. Stathopoulos was waiting on 4th Street in a car, and French and Deegan entered the alley. Deegan opened the rear door. He was shot twice in the back of the head and also in the body. The information at the time was that three guns were used. Lieutenant John Collins of ballistics confirmed the report of three guns being used at a later time. The two men approached the car in which Stathopoulos was waiting, and he took off, end quote. J. Edgar Hoover's office sent a memo to the Boston SAC on March 16th stating, quote, at the earliest possible time that dissemination can be made with full security to BS-837C, asterisk, the wiretap at Raymond Patriarchas, you should advise appropriate authorities of the identities of the possible perpetrators of the murders of Sacramony and Deegan. Advise the Bureau when this has been done, unquote. Detective Stewart interviewed Romeo Martin that same day. Romeo denied all direct knowledge of the killing, but he said he had been at the Ebb Tide Lounge in Revere with the same people named by Wimpy Bennett. He gave what purported to be a hearsay report of the murder similar to that given by Bennett, but at the end of Romeo's statement, he said, quote, I saw somebody get the number of my registration plate as we were leaving the scene, unquote. On March 19th, the Boston SAC sent an air tell to Hoover. Quote, informants report that Ronald Cassesso, Romeo Martin, Jimmy Fleming, and Joseph Barboza, prominent local hoodlums, were responsible for the killing of Edward Teddy Deegan. They accomplished this by having Roy French, another Boston hoodlum, set Deegan up. French apparently walked in behind Deegan when they were gaining entrance to the building and fired the first shot, hitting Deegan in the back of the head. Cassesso and Martin immediately thereafter shot Deegan from the front. Anthony Stathopoulos was also in on the burglary, but had remained outside in the car. When Flemmy and Barboza walked over to Stathopoulos's car, Stathopoulos thought it was the law and took off. Flemmy and Barboza were going to kill Stathopoulos also. Efforts are now being made by the Chelsea Police Department to force Stathopoulos to furnish them the necessary information to prosecute the persons responsible. It should be noted that this information was furnished to the Chelsea Police Department and it has been established by the Chelsea Police that Roy French, Barboza, Flemmy, Cassesso, and Martin were all together at the Ebtide nightclub in Revere and they all left at approximately 9 o'clock and returned 45 minutes later. It should be noted that the killing took place at approximately 9.30 p.m. on Friday, March 12th. Informant also advised that Patriarca had given the okay to Joe Barboza and Jimmy Flemmy to kill Joseph Francione, who was killed approximately one month ago, end quote. I want to point out that in none of the initial reports were Joseph Salvati, Peter Lamoni, Henry Tamilio, or Louis Greco's names ever mentioned. In fact, they wouldn't be named as suspects for another two years. Before we continue on, let's talk a bit about another one of the suspects, Ronnie Cassesso, who was born on December 22nd, 1931 in Boston to Angelina DeVecchio and Michael Cassesso. Ronnie was Ralph, Ralphie Chong Lamatina's driver. Patriarca thought very highly of Ronnie, but Jerry Angelo was not so enthusiastic and was overheard on the wiretaps on multiple occasions complaining about Ronnie. In typical Jerry fashion, he once told Raymond some story about an ongoing feud between Joe Anselmo and Ralphie Chong. Somehow he lumped Ronnie into the story, even though Ronnie really had nothing to do with it. But in late September of 64, the wiretap picked up Raymond Patriarca complaining that Joe Barboza was attempting to cause unnecessary trouble for Ronnie. Raymond noted that he thought Ronnie was, quote, a pretty good kid, unquote. 
In December of 1964, Romeo Martin and Cassesso robbed a Newton jeweler of a diamond valued at $60,000. Henry Tamilio became involved in the aftermath, as did Mike Rocco. The jeweler was willing to buy back the diamond for $30,000. Rocco had contacted the jeweler and told him to tell his wife to keep quiet about Romeo Martin, who was being held on a $25,000 bail. Cassessa was being sought by the police. Raymond wasn't exactly happy about the fact that Ronnie was running around with Romeo Martin either. He believed that Martin wasn't too smart, but he did think a lot of Cassesso. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Ronnie made the entree for Wimpy and Jimmy Flemmy to visit Raymond on January 4th, 1965. At that meeting, Raymond told Ronnie that he was interested in him and that he would stand firmly behind him since he never asked for anything, and Raymond thought that he was, quote, holding his own pretty good, unquote. Fast forwarding a little bit, Ronnie was eventually arrested in January of 66 for the diamond robbery. He pleaded guilty and in April was sentenced to 9 to 15 years. It's my opinion that Cassessa was targeted by the feds because of Raymond's personal interest in him and his future in the mafia. Having read Raymond's comments, I think he saw himself in Ronnie and had some fantasy of making Ronnie his eventual replacement. Obviously, the feds couldn't let that happen. Let's get back to the timeline. In April of 1965, Barboza was finally listed as one of the shooters by the FBI. A Boston field office special agent, whose name was redacted, advised the Boston SAC on April 4th that on March 23rd, a potential confidential informant reported that Joe Barboza was very friendly with Romeo Martin, Ronnie Cassesso, and redacted, who we know was Jimmy Flemmy. His name, of course, was redacted because of his status as a top echelon informant. The PCI said that Barboza was supposed to have hit Francione and Carl Eaton. He stated that Barboza reportedly killed Eaton with a 357 Magnum handgun. The PCI also told the agent that Barboza was in prison with Benjamin, who was murdered after he left prison and beheaded. Nina and I both are of the opinion that Jimmy killed Benjamin. Jimmy was also previously in prison with him. Like many of the other hits, there were multiple versions of the stories and suspects, including those copying to the hits more so than you could shake a stick at. Jerry and Jula went to Raymond's on April 8th and told Raymond that Spike O'Toole had recently contacted him. According to Spike, Wimpy Bennett and Jimmy Flemmy were both stool pigeons for Detective Billy Stewart. In addition, Spike had told Jerry that Johnny and Jimmy Moderano paid Jimmy Flemmy $1,500 to dispose of Margaret Sylvester's body back in October of 64. Special Agent Murphy, who was monitoring the wiretap, noted on the transcripts that Jimmy Flemmy had cut her body into pieces. If you listen to episode 27, you might recall that the Monterano brothers killed Margaret, who was a waitress at their father's after-hours club, because she was having an affair with their father. Jimmy Flemmy did not remove the body as promised, but instead left and called Detective Billy Stewart. When the cops showed up at the lounge with a search warrant, they found her blood and then later her hacked-up body. Spike O'Toole also told Jerry that Jimmy and Stewart had been to New York in December of 1964 to testify in front of a grand jury. Two local men were charged with possession and production of counterfeit American Express traveler's checks, which they passed in New York. Jimmy had inside information on the counterfeit ring and an axe to grind against the men since one of his partners in crime was the unlucky recipient of some of the bogus traveler's checks. John McCambridge, who at the time had jumped bail on a shooting, was in possession of $200,000 worth of the checks, which he was going to use to go on the lam. McCambridge had dumped them before he was arrested. 
Like his buddies, Jimmy and Stevie Flemmy, McCambridge had a history of violence, including the 1959 stabbing of a taxi driver on Christmas Eve in Roxbury. It was believed that Stevie Flemmy was with McCambridge when he stabbed the taxi driver. Well, birds of a feather. Spike apparently also told Jerry that he had plans to kill Wimpy and Walter Bennett. Instead of telling Spike that he couldn't kill the Bennett brothers, Jerry almost immediately called up Jimmy Flemmy. After swearing Jimmy to secrecy, Jerry told him the details of Spike's planned hit on the Bennetts, including the date. At 12.30 in the morning on April 3rd, Jimmy came rushing into Jerry's, demanding to see him. When Jerry appeared, Jimmy blurted out that Spike and Francis Xavier Murray had tried to kill Wimpy at his house, but missed. He added that Wimpy was very thankful to Jerry for warning him of the possible hit. Jerry became incensed that Jimmy did not maintain his confidence and had told Wimpy of the possible hit. The more Jimmy attempted to defend himself, the deeper he got with Jerry. Jimmy finally admitted that he was very friendly with Billy Stewart. Jerry also told Patriarca that when Wimpy was shot, he called Billy Stewart and was unable to immediately get in touch with him. But he left his name and his number with the police and requested that Stewart contact him as soon as possible. Jerry was a fucking menace, the source of his own misery. And why would he tell Jimmy about Spike's plan, hoping they'd wipe each other out? Well, I'd like to give him credit for trying to manipulate the situation, but I expect, I suspect that he just wanted to guss. <laughs> like an old lady. Oh, yeah. Even after all of this, Patriarca continued to meet with Jimmy. On May 3rd, Raymond was picked up on the wiretap questioning Jimmy about his relationship with Billy Stewart. Jimmy dodged the question and Raymond dropped the subject. Later that same evening, Jimmy was shot at again, this time while walking out his front door on Adams Street in Dorchester to meet with Joe Barboza. He did a complete somersault, and when his assailants closed in for the kill shot, he started firing back, emptying his own 38 caliber revolver. Just two days later, Barboza and Cassesso were back at Raymond's office requesting permission to kill Sammy Linden. They included Jimmy, who was laid up in the hospital, in their sales pitch. Their justification for wanting to kill Lyndon was that he was financing the McLaughlin brothers and their crew. As we've mentioned in several episodes, Barboza and Jimmy were aligned with Buddy McLean. Wimpy Bennett was originally with the McLaughlins, but had switched sides a couple of years previously. Although according to Wimpy's statements to Jerry and Julo, he didn't know what side to choose. It wasn't a question of loyalty that was weighing on Wimpy's mind, but rather who would come out on top. Wimpy wanted to be on the winning side. Well, to be fair to Wimpy, Raymond was playing the same game. <laughs> True. Raymond didn't give Barboza and company a definitive answer about whacking Lyndon, but Lyndon went straight to Joe Lombardo when he heard that Barboza was gunning for him. Lombardo put a stop to it, at least for the immediate future, but it didn't end there. Lombardo made it known to Raymond that he was pissed off that Barboza and Cassessa were wrapped up with the Flemmy brothers, and that the word was out on the street that Barboza was with Flemmy when Teddy Deegan was killed. And that brings us to the next person on Barboza's wish hit list, Spike O'Toole. Barboza made a solo trip to the Coinomatic on May 18, 1965. He was there to ask Raymond's permission to burn down Spike O'Toole's home in order to kill him. Again, his reasoning was that Spike was an ally of the McLaughlins. Barboza had been unable to catch Spike off guard, and he felt that if he started a fire at his home, he would either perish in the fire or be forced out onto the street where Barboza would be able to get a shot at Spike. 
Remember that Spike had been in a long-term relationship with Dottie Barshard and had two children with her. Dottie was also carrying on with both Joe Barboza and their attorney, John Fitzgerald. So Barboza's real motive was likely more about the love triangle than the McLaughlin feud. Barboza told Raymond that he planned to pour gasoline in the basement of the house and set it on fire, and he would have two or three individuals there with rifles to kill Spike as he emerged from the house. But Spike's sick mother also lived in the triple-decker, and Raymond wanted no part of that. He would not give Barboza his blessing. But true to form, Barboza ignored Raymond's instructions, and less than two weeks later, the police received a phone call at about two in the morning. There were two men in a car outside of Spike's Dorchester home. Someone had removed pieces of paper from a trash barrel, piled it against the wooden three-decker where Spike was living with his mother, and ignited it. But the fire burned itself out, and Spike stayed put, calling the police instead. The two men who were parked outside fled, but the police caught one of them and arrested him for unlawful possession of a firearm. One perpetrator was fined $200, and the other received a year in the House of Correction. As for Spike, he went on a lamb hiding out on the Cape from both the would-be assassins and the authorities. In an FBI report from mid-July, Dottie Varshard told her FBI handler that she had met with Spike in the middle of June at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Bar, which I am still trying to imagine. Hey, Dad was hanging in there too, but he preferred the cafe. I can't. Wise guys at the Ritz. Spike told her that Raymond had sent someone from Providence to meet with him and Punchy. Raymond's messenger told them to stop the killings because they were bringing too much heat on everyone. I'm really not sure how they were supposed to do that since they weren't the ones killing people. Raymond was the one meeting with serial killers. But Spike and Punchy told Raymond's messenger that it was too late now because things had gone too far. Dottie also informed her handler that Spike had told her that the men who tried to kill him worked for Wimpy and the Flemmies and that they had put on obscene shows in the Old Dudley Lounge, which was owned by the Flemmy brothers. Not an image I need in my head. These people were degenerates. On June 8, 1965, Rico paid Jimmy a visit at the hospital and told him that he could only provide information to the FBI and only receive payment from them. Obviously, the comments on the wiretap about Jimmy talking to Billy Stewart ruffled some feathers. Jimmy told Rico, I am willing to aid the Bureau as I can put away the individuals who attempted to kill me. The following day, another memorandum was sent from the Boston SAC to Hoover. Jimmy's emotional stability was called into question. The memorandum continued on to say that although from all indications Jimmy will continue to commit murder, the agent, H. Paul Rico, believes that the informant's potential outweighs the risks involved. They left a serial killer loose on the streets. Multiple ones. Absolutely sickening. On July 9th, Romeo Martin was shot and killed, allegedly by Joe Barboza. Let's give some background on Romeo. I know we spoke briefly about Romeo's criminal history in the last episode, but we can give a little personal info here. Joseph Alfred Romeo Martin was born on November 24th, 1923 to Mary Boucher and Joseph Arthur Romeo Martin in Peabody, Mass. The family moved to Roxbury shortly after Romeo was born. That explains how he fell in with the Fleming brothers. Romeo's criminal career dated back to the time he was 16 when he stole a bike. He spent more time in prison than out of it. By 1942, Romeo was living on Bullfinch Street in the West End. He was arrested in January that year for a series of housebreaks that had taken place in Roxbury, Jamaica Plain, Brookline, and the Back Bay in the autumn of 41. I believe that 11-year-old Teddy Deegan was one of his unnamed accomplices. Romeo was anxious to get back to the Concord Reformatory to make the basketball team. Basketball, baseball, hey, he was like a double letter man. 
1964, Joe Anselmo questioned Sammy Granito about Romeo Martin and asked if he had any objections to Romeo being proposed to be made. Sammy said he did not. Patriarca was heated because Joe Anselmo didn't propose Romeo properly along with Ronnie Cassesso. Romeo had told Anselmo that he was friendly with Raymond when they were in the can together. Raymond said that he may have been locked up with him, but he didn't hang with him. According to Raymond, Romeo was tight with Johnny Williams when they were away, and also Vincent Gagan and Sandy Richardson, two of the men convicted in the 1950s Brinks heist. What are you saying? Romeo Martin wasn't even Italian. He was English and French. Hey, it was another one of those Denny Ramondi situations. Either the first or last name ended in a vowel, so no need to check. And who knows what story Romeo told? Maybe he said his real last name was Martino or something. I doubt he said that his father worked at a country club. Well, maybe that's why he went golfing on the day he died. Maybe. Anyhow, back to the timeline again. According to Mafia Encyclopedia extraordinaire Vinny Teresa, he was one of the last people to see Romeo alive. Vinny went golfing with Romeo and Richie Castucci, who ran the ebb tide. We will be covering Richie in season two. Afterwards, Vinny invited Romeo to the ebb tide for dinner. While they were having dinner, Romeo told Vinny that he was having trouble with Barboza. Barboza had accused Romeo of shaking down a club owner for more money than he was supposed to and held out on Barboza, which resulted in him threatening to kill Romeo. Romeo had recently been married and was planning on leaving for Florida with his new bride the following day. But when he left the ebb tide, Barboza and Cassessa were waiting for him. They grabbed him, took him someplace, and pumped five slugs into his chest before dumping his body. The cops found him after a call from a neighbor who heard Romeo's car crash at about three in the morning, less than a quarter mile from his Revere home. He had fallen sideways in the front seat of his red convertible. The motor was still running. The turn signal was blinking and the windshield wipers were on. When word of Romeo's murder reached Henry Tamilio, he screamed at Vinny and told him to get Barboza and put a stop to the killings. Vinny told Tamilio, Christ, Henry, they were supposed to be friends. Who knew this animal was going to kill him? They were all afraid of them. Think about that. And not one of them lifted a finger to do anything to stop them. Not Joe Lombardo, not Don Pepino, not Raymond, and not Jerry. Not one of them. I'd just like to say here that I do not believe that Romeo Martin shot Teddy. They'd been running on the streets together since they were kids. Nearly 25 years. I agree with you. Barboza most likely concocted the story about Romeo ripping him off and played out the farce with him. It was a cover for the real reason that Barboza had to kill Romeo, which was likely his fear that he'd tell the truth that Barboza, Flemmy, and Cassesso killed Teddy. Well, that seems far more likely. Now, the reason for the next event is still a mystery. The wiretaps at the Coinomatic and at Jerry Angelo's headquarters in Jay's Lounge were allegedly turned off just a few days after Romeo was murdered. Let's give a brief history of Henry Tamilio before we move on. Enrico Henry Tamilio was born on July 12, 1901 to Severio and Marie in Providence, Rhode Island. Both of his parents were from Marzano, Appio, Campania. He was one of six children. He married Giovannina Jeanette Borelli, whose parents were also from Marzano, on October 21, 1919. In 1941, his draft card was he was described in his draft card as 5'9", 1,990 pounds, bald with brown eyes. A longtime friend of Raymond's, Henry served as his underboss. He often acted as a mediator, settling beefs between the guys, earning the nickname the referee. Henry's early record revolved around motor vehicle violations, but some, unlike some of his compatriots, he seemed to have left that all behind by the, by the late 30s. 
The most serious offense we could find was in 1930 for assisting in a jailbreak. Until 1959, he appeared to stay out of trouble or at least from getting caught. That October, he and several others were served with restraining orders banning them from the Lincoln Downs racetrack. That ban became permanent in June of 60. In 1966, he was back in the press because he was rumored to be a shareholder in Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. Then, in May of 67, some content of the wiretap at Raymond's, at Raymond's were made public because of Louis the Fox Taglianetti's IRS case. Tamilio's position as Raymond's conciliaire became public, and thanks to Barboza, he found himself indicted along with Raymond and Ronnie Cassesso for the murder of William Maffeo, which we will be covering in a future episode. Laura, I'll let you get back to the timeline. September of 1956 brought about some changes for Barboza and Jimmy. On September 10th, Barboza was arrested for pistol-whipping a policeman in the ebb tide, and five days later, Jimmy was closed out as an informant. Not because he had attempted to murder another man, John Cutliffe, but because he failed to appear in court and was on the lam. A memo written by Special Agent Rico was sent to the Boston SAC to Hoover. Quote, in view of the fact that the informant, Jimmy Flemmy, is presently a local fugitive, any contacts with him might prove to be difficult and embarrassing. In view of this, the case is being closed. End quote. What an absolute joke. But the feds weren't short of informants. They traded Jimmy Flemmy for Stevie Flemmy. It was an upgrade. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> the investigation into Teddy's murder seemed to sputter to a stop for several months. Jimmy was finally arrested on November 19, 1965, and Barboza was in and out of jail throughout that same period. We've covered both their stories in their respective episodes, so we'll spare you the rehash here. On January 14, 1966, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston received a report entitled Boston Gangland Murders Criminal Intelligence Program that was prepared by Special Agent John Keogh. It covered the investigative period between November 15, 1965 and January 11, 1966. The section dedicated to Teddy's murder was mostly a copy-paste job from previous FBI reports. The only real change is that they substituted Fitzgerald for Farisi as the attorney who Tony Stats went running to. To be fair, they were partners, but Fitzgerald had been busy with Roy French at the time. Keogh's report concluded, quote, the above information was furnished to the police department. However, as yet, they have not obtained sufficient evidence to warrant production against any of the above individuals, unquote. Two days later, Barboza was sentenced to six months in the House of Correction for disturbing the peace. Tony Statz was given two and a half years in the House of Correction that same month. He had pleaded guilty to the January 1965 charge of assault with a dangerous weapon. He and Teddy had both been picked up at that time and were out on bail when Teddy was murdered. Stats asked not to be sent to Walpole because he feared what would happen to him there. The prosecutor agreed, saying that Stats's fear was, quote, definitely genuine and not feigned, unquote. Jimmy Flummy was deemed incompetent by the court just a few days later. Barboza's arrest in early October 1966 would change the direction of the investigation. He was arrested in downtown Boston with Nikki Femia, Patrick Fabiano, and Arthur Tosh Bratzos. Inside the car, the cops found a loaded 45 caliber Army automatic, a quantity of 30 caliber carbine armor-piercing ammunition, and six clips of M1 rifle ammo. In addition, they found a 7-inch dagger and a switchblade knife. 
District Attorney Garrett Byrne begged for no bail, but the judge refused, saying that he couldn't legally hold the men without it. But he set bail at $100,000 for both Barboza and Femia. It should be noted here that Barboza was already out on bail two times over at this point. $25,000 double surety on illegal gun charges from August, and then $35,000 double surety for the attempt on Arthur Pearson's life in July. Fitzgerald and Farisi argued that their client's bail should be reduced. Farisi said that Barboza was employed by an insurance company and a cafe in Antasket, and they needed to get back to work. Barboza was desperate to get bailed out, so he decided to send Tosh Bratzos and Tommy DePrisco out to collect the money that he felt was owed to him, but it was more like a shakedown. Things didn't go quite as planned. Both men were shot twice in the head. Their bodies were found in the backseat of their car, which was parked in a lot in South Boston the morning of November 15, 1966. If you want to hear more about that, listen to episode 24. Things would only get worse for Barboza. On December 8th, his friend Chico Amico was killed. He was shot outside of Alfonso's Broken Hearts Club, where he'd been trying to shake down some people to help Barboza. According to more than just Vinnie Teresa's account, Barboza went insane when he heard the news. He called Patriarca a fag and promised to kill everyone in sight for killing Chico. On January 25th, 1967, Barboza, Femia, and Fabiano were found guilty of possession of weapons and sentenced to prison. Barboza received a four to five year sentence for having a gun in an automobile and four to five years for a similar charge involving a knife. The sentences were set to run concurrently. FBI Special Agents Rico and Condon approached Barboza in prison and attempted to convince him to testify against the mafia, but Barboza wasn't interested. So the two feds tried a different approach, Jimmy Flemmy's brother Stevie, who had recently been made a top echelon informant. According to later FBI reports, Stevie Flemmy convinced Barboza that his present incarceration and potential for continued car- incarceration for the rest of his life was wholly attributable to LCN efforts directed by Gennaro, Jerry, and Julo, LCN Boston head. On March 8th, Barboza agreed to talk to the FBI as long as they agreed not to use any of his statements against him. At that meeting, he told the feds that he would go to see Raymond to get approval before he made any moves. In addition, he stated that he was going to kill several people for the slayings of his friends, Amico, Bratzos, and DePrisco. His biggest lie that he told the feds was that he knew what happened in every murder in the area. His only demand was that he would never give evidence that would incriminate Jimmy Flemmy or, as he put it, quote, fry him, unquote. In May, Barboza was brought in front of a grand jury to testify in the Willie Maffeo murder case, but he wasn't the only one. Rico and Condon met with Ronnie Cassesso at the U.S. Attorney's Office prior to his appearance before a federal grand jury. Quote, Cassesso was told that if he would cooperate in the investigation of organized crime, and if he was of material help, his assistance would be brought to the attention of the local authorities, and his degree of cooperation would also be made known to the parole board. Cassesso said that he had nothing to worry about and did not plan to furnish any information before a grand jury, end quote. Later, Cassesso was offered a reduced sentence to corroborate Barboza's false testimony, and he flat out refused, saying he would not lie about who was responsible for Teddy's murder. It wasn't just Teddy's case that Barboza was testifying about. He was also giving testimony in the Maffeo case and in the DeSiglio murder. 
In August, an informant learned that Larry Bioni and Peter Lamoni received information that Joe Barboza was going to testify in front of a Suffolk County grand jury about the murder of Teddy Deegan. Next, the feds needed to convince Anthony Stathopoulos to testify. Nine attempts had been made on Tony Stats' life by September of 67. Three of those attempts had been made while he was in jail. Quote, cyanide was put in my sandwich. There was enough to kill 100 horses. They put lye in my coffee. I had to have my stomach pumped out, unquote. There were also drive-by shootings after he'd been released. He finally went to ground, hiding out in the backwoods of Maine. But the assassins found him there, too. Quote, they even came into the rooming house. They wore wigs and were disguised as women, but I spotted them. This final attempt convinced him to turn himself into protective custody. In desperation, Stats made a long-distance phone call to Officer Tommy Robson, who was with the Suffolk County DA Garrett Burns' office. Stats told Boston Globe journalist Ronald Wasatsky, I tried to do everything so they'd get the message that I wasn't going to talk. When I got out of jail in April, I went to some big people and tried to straighten things out. I thought I had, and then I saw them making moves again. What do you do when you find out that your friends have the contract to kill you? There's the same playbook from Specky O'Keefe, pressuring the guy until he agrees to do and say exactly what you want. Well, anyhow, the FBI transported Stathopoulos to the Barnstable County Jail, where Barboza was being held in protective custody. The purpose of the meeting was to discuss Barboza's upcoming grand jury testimony. Stathopoulos asked Barboza about Jimmy Flemmy during the meeting. Later, Stathopoulos said, quote, before I go before the grand jury, I wanted to see Joe Barboza. He was the only one who could answer some questions. They bought me to see him and he answered the questions. Barboza's thinking about his wife and kids the same way that I'm thinking about mine. No matter how bad a guy is, he'll always revert to caring about the important things. It's too bad that it's always too late when you start thinking about your wife and family. It doesn't pay to be a wise guy, end quote. During Stathopoulos' grand jury testimony, he quoted Teddy's last words, quote, they'll never get me here, tapping his forehead. They'll have to get me here, tapping the back of his head, end quote. Two detectives of the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office went to interview Barboza at the Barnstable County Jail in September in preparation for his grand jury appearance. Special agents Rico and Condon were also in attendance to coach him. A six-page report was submitted after the interview. Barboza said that he returned from Florida the first week of March 1965. He gave yet another reason for them wanting Deegan out of the way. This time it involved Barboza's own attorney, who had also been Teddy's, John Fitzgerald. Barboza claimed that Fitzgerald went to a gas station with Teddy and borrowed $1,000 from Peter Lamoni to give to Georgie McLaughlin. According to Barboza's tale, Lamoni felt that Georgie was shaking him down and became enraged. Of course, Barboza had to get Fitzgerald, his rival for Dorothy Barshard's affections, in there. Hey, kept trying. But how could they even think about putting him on the stand? His story changed every time he opened his mouth. But I guess they didn't care since they had the judge in their pocket, too, it seems. Barboza probably didn't concoct the stories. Rico probably did, just like he did in Jack Kelly's case. Well, we're building up to that story, not to give away the punchline or anything. But as we've said before, it's also so reminiscent of the Brinks case and what these people did to Specs O'Keefe. The only difference is that Specs wasn't a serial killer. If you haven't listened to our episode on the Brinks case, we've linked that one in the show notes. 
Back to Barboza. On September 8, 1967, he was taken into custody by the U.S. Marshals. The following day, he was transferred to Thatcher Island in Gloucester, Mass., and he began calling Dennis Condon at his home number, expressing his nervousness about testifying. Denny! (laughs) What a jerk trying to victimize himself. I can't feel sorry for Denny Condon, though. But soon, Barboza would get to perform his scripted melodrama. On October 25th, 1967, Barboza made his appearance in front of the grand jury. He testified that they used Romeo Martin's maroon Oldsmobile convertible as a getaway car the night of Teddy's murder. Ronnie Cassesso bent back the rear license plate on the car, so only the numbers 404 were showing. Barboza said no promises were made to him in exchange for his testimony. He also stated that Peter Lamoni offered him a total of $10,000 for killing both Deegan and Tony Statz. His testimony implicated Henry Tamilio by saying he approved of the killing beforehand. Barboza claimed that he left the scene before the murder and got the details later in a meeting in a back room at the Ebb Tide. Then, Barboza hung Roy French, Romeo Martin, and Louis Greco out to dry, claiming that French said he shot Deegan first in the head with a thirty-eight, and Romeo told him that he shot Deegan in the chest, and Greco said to Barboza that he shot Deegan with a forty-five in the stomach. Remember that an FBI 302 dated March 25, 1965, stated that Barboza shot Teddy in the stomach with a 45, but he was allowed to perjure himself as usual. Barboza continued that Peter Lamoni gave him the money he promised him for killing Teddy. Conveniently, Barboza left out of his testimony that Jimmy Flemmy was also present that evening, even though he had given a statement to Condon and Rico that Jimmy was present. To top it off, he placed Joseph Salvati at the scene of the crime. Since we gave a brief background on Peter Lamoni in the last episode, we won't rehash that, but let's talk about Louis Greco and Joe Salvati a bit. Louis Greco was born on February 4th, 1917 in Revere, Massachusetts to Elizabeth D'Asandro and Carmine Greco. He had a small criminal record, including a conviction for a B&E in October of 35 and a conviction for armed robbery in October of 37, for which he was sentenced to seven to 10 years in state prison. Louis was awarded two bronze stars and a purple heart for his service in the South Pacific in World War II. He was shot in the leg and walked with a limp. Upon his return to Revere, Louis fell in with his old crowd. In July of 48, he was arraigned on a conspiracy charge along with Anthony Cataldo and Alfred DeAngelis. The authorities alleged that the men were trying to extort money from the Bayside Club in Revere. Louis' attorney in that case was Al Farisi, and the following month, Louis and his accomplices were freed. In May of 59, Louis was arrested in connection with the Philip Goldie Goldstein murder. We've covered the murder in the episode about Pro Lerner, since Pro later allegedly planned to rob Goldstein's son. Louis was held as a material witness because Goldstein's body was found near Louis' recently purchased farm in New Hampshire, but they had to release him after 72 hours. He wouldn't be arrested again until 1968. Joseph Salvati was born on October 30, 1932 in Boston to Anthony and Mary Salvati. Salvati's record was limited to one arrest for a B&E back in 1954. He worked odd jobs around the North End, including as a watchman at the Coliseum. Teddy Deegan was a complete stranger to him, and his only interaction with Barboza was a $400 loan that Salvati had taken from another loan shark. That loan shark sold the note to Barboza. When Barboza demanded payment in full, Salvati couldn't come up with the money, so Barboza sent a couple of guys to rough him up. But instead, Salvati ripped the baseball bat out of one of the guy's hands, 
Salvati believed that the reason Barboza framed him for the murder of a man he never met was the money that he owed. Well, I have a different theory about why Salvati was targeted and placed at the scene of the crime. It stems from a murder that took place in October of 1961. Fiori de Cristoforo was shot three times in the back at 5.15 in the morning outside the Coliseum restaurant in the North End. He survived for another two weeks before succumbing to his wounds. He claimed that he did not know who had shot him. A witness told the cops that DeCristoforo had been inside the restaurant and was shot by two men who were waiting for him outside. Salvati, the night watchman at the Coliseum, was the second witness to the shooting. It was the third in a string of shootings that autumn, and the cops believed that it stemmed from a loan sharking operation. Of course, the DeCristoforo murder was another one that was never solved. I agree with you. Barbosa was on the street at that time, and he more than likely was the shooter. Better not to leave loose ends. And who was going to believe a man indicted for murder himself? Henry Tomilio, Roy French, and Joseph Salvati were arrested a few hours after the indictments were returned. Peter Lamoni surrendered to the authorities on November 1st, and Louis Greco was arrested in Miami in January of 1968. Ronnie Cassessa was already serving time for the diamond theft. The trial began on May 27, 1968. Next week, we'll be covering the trial in the three decades long aftermath. We hope you join us again. Please share an episode and leave a review wherever you listen. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.